My name is Jim Farley, and this is Drive. Where'd your love of cars come from? Well, let's just start by the fact that my mom and dad drag raced in high school. My dad had a 68 Chevelle 396, and, and she ran in the powder puff division at, at Milan, and he, he raced. Like, just coming from a car-loving family, particularly my father, you know, if he had $10, he spent 20 on a car. <laughs> I'm the CEO and president of Ford Motor Company. I see the world through cars. I am really excited to talk to Dax Shepard. Everyone knows him as the host of Top Gear, lots of movies, an incredibly successful podcast. On the surface, it looks like we couldn't be any more different. The reality is we're actually two car people. Dax, thanks so much. I guess to start, I got to ask you, what do you drive now? Well, man, this is a this is a potentially embarrassing question to answer because I'm I'm um, proper hillbilly rich. Like you know, <laughs> I, I own way too many cars. Good. My wife, you know, is very understanding, and, and at the same time, she really can't wrap her head around it because they all perform roughly the same job. Uh, but I compare it to handbags, you know. One only need a handbag, uh, but she has more than one, so I have more than one car. I also have pretty... I, I have one crazy, ostentatious purchase, but other than that, I like cars that should be very slow and, and making them very fast. That's my particular kink. I see. I want, I see. Yeah, I want to pull up next to somebody in something that shouldn't be fast and then blow their nice. mind. Nice. So, yep. you know, my my I bought a Roadmaster, 94 Roadmaster station wagon. I'm sorry, 95. You have the wood siding on that? Sorry, the vinyl siding? Oh, God, siding. yeah, yeah. Well, let's, yeah, let's just pretend it's wood. <laughs> but yes, it's got a nice vinyl laminate uh, that is shockingly held up perfectly. I, I found this car in Palos Verdes and it had 13,000 miles on it. And the most adorable part was the guy who owned it had bought two at once. He bought his and hers at an estate sale in Florida. And mine was his and had 13,000 miles. And he had hers, which had like 800 miles on it. Nice. My mom was a wagon person. She drove like a maniac. And she loved wagons that she bought the same car. And it was so unpopular. Everyone was buying Eddie Bauer <laughs> Explorers. And my mom's like... I like my goddamn wagon. Don't mess with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was like 10 or 11, <laughs> you remember in those wagons, you could go way in the back and like almost have your own space as a kid. And so I would put like cardboard up and I would have my own. And I was like 10 <laughs> sure. or 11 and I would start flipping off drivers that were passing us and they would then flip, flip off my mom. <laughs> and I did that for like three years. She had no idea. Yeah, well, well, the crazy thing about all those, like the B-body ones and the bigger ones is, yeah, so mine has a third row uh, rear-facing. Rear-facing, okay. Rear-facing. So as a kid, I didn't mind that at all. Like, you're just staring at the adult six feet away yeah. from you. But I have ridden back there now as an adult, and it is the most awkward, imaginable thing ever to be at a stoplight, and you're just staring directly at the person behind you in the <laughs> face. They're uncomfortable. And it just doesn't hit you as a kid. You got to be an adult to really feel that awkwardness. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. That's cool. Yeah. So I have to start by asking you, um, like this podcast thing. Yes. I have a tough time warming up. Do you have any advice on like, what do you do with that awkward first 10 minutes? It's well, 10. I assume I assume you, you edit, right? There's editing. Yes. When we first started, I, maybe the first 20 episodes, we didn't edit. And so my panic of filling the void yes. if it was a two second gap 
led to me just kind of steamrolling out of fear of silence. And then once we started editing, I, I became much more comfortable with it being slower, which helped the show a lot. And then we have a saying here in our studio, which is ABR, always be recording. So when you come in, we're already recording. And there's no let's begin. It, it just is there. You've arrived, we're chatting, I we never see. stop chatting, and then you split. I find this is, a, this is true in acting, which is there's something very... Uh, heightening about just hearing the word action, right? Like you could be in rehearsal and everyone's so calm and relaxed. And then just this word action is is almost like, uh, gentlemen, start your engines or, uh, you know, coming out of the blocks of a race. And now I think it, it saddles you with some anxiety that's unnecessary. So I try to never make that like profound, we're starting. Interesting. Thing. So maybe more fundamental question in a way is how have you been able to be, let your guard down and be, vulnerable, which is for a CEO of a major public company, it's kind of pretty hard for me to let my guard down because I can't, sure. I can't let people know that I'm a real person. Yeah, the shareholders. Yeah. But you know, to some degree, the, these are stories we're telling ourselves. So I relapsed, right? And I was known for having 16 years of sobriety. So when debating whether or not to be honest about that, I was doing what maybe you're doing. I'm like, well, so-and-so is not going to sponsor me anymore. So-and-so is not going to sponsor me. Like, I'm looking at a potentially a huge loss of revenue if I'm honest about mm -hmm. that. And that was just the racket in my head. There was, there was no reason for me to have believed that. I don't know sponsors went away. And in fact, some were like super supportive and lovely. Mm -hmm. And I do think it just more proves that if you are honest and you're vulnerable, I, I don't see a lot of people getting burned for that. I just don't. You know, I see people get burned for a myriad of different reasons, but being sincere and authentic and honest and flawed, I just who how how many people can point a finger? I mean, we're all we all kind of we're all in the we, quagmire of we being all, humans. We all kind you know? of fit in that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that that is awesome. Um, so for you, I know you're like total car guy. You're even mentioning the body type in the GM vernacular of like your wagon. So I know you're like a serious car guy already. But where did it come from? Well, let's just start by the fact that my mom and dad drag raced in high school. My dad had a 68 Chevelle 396 and, and she ran in the powder puff division at, at Milan okay. and he, he raced. Like just coming from a car loving family, particularly my father, you know, if he had $10, he spent 20 on a car. <laughs> and and then he sold cars. So he worked at Avis Ford uh, on Telegraph for years. And then my mother started at the Proving Grounds uh, for General Motors on the night shift as a janitor. And then she slowly worked her way up to um, fleet management. And she then started this company, Shows and Shoots, that managed all of General Motors' press fleets in mm -hmm. Detroit, Chicago, oh, Dallas. Okay. So you got to see all the good stuff. It, well, from 14 years old on, I started working for her. I was in heaven because really quickly into that, I would volunteer to help the the photographers take pictures of the cars. They need they always need someone to drive sure. the car around the track. Sure. And so I would compare it to like Bill Gates living next to a mainframe, yeah. uh, a library with a mainframe in the 80s. So, you know, just the notion that at 14, I was at Road, Road America yeah. in this crazy ZL1 Camaro with a 572. No, no one really gets to do that. So I got kind of an inordinate amount of track time. I, I wanted to be a race car driver. I wanted to learn about all that. And then I got into drag racing in high school. I got up 84 Mustang GT and rebuilt the engine. Perfect. And, 
used to go on grass shit and do the whole thing. Got it. And it just never stopped. And then I and then I started making money, and I could buy all these things as a kid. I I I wanted. So uh, well, I have to ask: Did you ever sneak on the GM test track? <sighs> I didn't sneak on. They run a pretty damn tight ship out there, but. My stepfather for three years was the ride and handling engineer oh. with the Corvette. Group. Wow. And yeah, I think I went for that car, a ride in that car in 82. Ooh. And man, I thought I was in Knight Rider or something. That was the first like <laughs> digital dash I ever saw. Yeah. That, that car was from the future. Also, they had all the competitor fleet. So they had oh, a Countach 5000S. No way. Yeah, they had a Lotus Esprit. No way. They had a 308 GTS. So. These really cool cars were around. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So Top Gear. My family lived in the U.K. for six years. We would sit down. My son's 14 now. Even when he was seven, we'd sit down and watch that show every week. Do you think we have too many lawyers in the U.S. for Top Gear U.S. to be as good as it should be? Well, I, I urge you to watch our version of it because – and then I'm going to sound like a terrible braggart, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you honestly – when I got asked to do it, I, I met with them and I said, look, there's a version of this show I would love to do, but I need you to know what I think was brilliant about the Jeremy Clarkson era, which is similarly, Jeremy was dangerous. Yes, you never. And, 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 he pro- and he proved to be to the degree that he punched out yes. a producer and the show went away. And I said, there was a punk rock spirit to that first iteration mm. that no one's aimed mm. at since in my in my humble mm-hmm. opinion but i said for me the show has to be number one punk rock you have to feel like are these guys going to get arrested on this episode and that was our full unified vision for it, this current iteration and i have to say ours is so dangerous it's insane uh my co-host jethro bovington he's a uk journalist and he he's, he's a great driver and so he and I are so competitive. And thank God for us, n- none of the people making the show know a ton about cars. So it's up to Jethro and I to tell them what's safe. And we're lying to them. <laughs> and we're jumping things and we're smashing into each other and I'm T-boning them in a junkyard. And we're, you know, there isn't an episode where we don't destroy something, jump something, you know. It sounds perfect. If a car's not sideways 30% of the time you're driving it, we get it off the show. So... I think we've really, really nailed the one thing that I know personally I wanted it to have, which is like, you're, you're a little scared. Wow, that sounds great. I, I was curious about um, where you drive in LA because as a Detroit kid, you grew up kind of thinking like, I'm going to drag race at Milan or I'm going to, you know, I could, I could see you. How about LA? Like, because yeah. LA has, I think, some of the best roads uh, in America. Yeah, so at the risk of like getting arrested slash uh, drawing the police to this area, there, there's a the Angeles Crest is, yep. is this yeah Love huge it. mountain road network. It's the greatest motorcycle ride. It's a great if I I rarely drive my GT. If I do, it's there. I take it up there, um, and then we have so many racetracks out here. I, I got to say. California is a dream if you're into motorsports because we have so many racetracks. We have Glamis, the biggest sand dunes in the country, you know, 400 square miles of absolutely lawless, uh, no rules. You know, everyone's got over a thousand horsepower. And then I can go four hours north and I can go snowmobiling to Mammoth. It's a paradise if you want to ride things all year round. 
This is Drive. I'm Jim Farley, and we'll be right back with Dax Shepard. This is Drive, and I'm Jim Farley. Can I ask you some Ford questions? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, like, any advice for a CEO? Um, what car should we build that makes absolutely no sense and no market research would ever tell us? Okay, so let me start by owning my ethical dilemma, which is the only reason I ever wanted to make money in my whole life was to buy motorcycles and snowmobiles and cars. And so I finally get to do that thing, and now I'm very aware of what carbon's doing to the planet. And I'm like... No, this isn't fair. You don't get to introduce a moral conundrum once I've reached this <laughs> dream of mine to have these cars. And this is an issue on Top Gear as well. Like, you know, we have to acknowledge on some level that a car getting six miles to a gallon is ethically maybe not the best move. And yet I'm such an automotive enthusiast. So we had a Tesla. It wasn't for us. We didn't care yep. for it. I'm not going to yep. get into why. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for us. I then... I had the Taycan for two weeks, the Porsche, and that's an incredible fucking it car. And, and 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 it and it won me over. I didn't want it to like it. I got in it and I started it. I'm like, who cares? You don't Great even know car. it started. Blah 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 blah. But the fact that they're putting the noise in, which mm -hmm. I would have I would have guessed would have been corny. It's such a game changer. Yes. Having the the fake engine noise in there prevents the passengers from getting car sick. It gives you some visceral sensation because the car is lightning fast. It handles perfectly. It, it's an incredible car. So that car for me has kind of got me maybe more open to the idea that I might love driving electrics one day. And I know I need to learn to embrace it. I mean, I think the uh, all-electric F-150 is so cool. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And the big boys are getting into it. Like Mercedes. There's no way Mercedes is releasing an electric car that isn't kick-ass. Yes. Yeah. So here's my view. You know, I've been in the industry for 40 years. I mean, I, I've seen hundred, literally hundreds and hundreds of vehicles in the design studio and have had to kind of make judgments on, on those. And for me, here's yeah. how I look at it. The first inning, this is a nine inning, at least a nine inning transition. The first inning, the industry leaned into these super rational, um, affordable battery electrics because... It was a new technology they wanted more people to experience, so they tried to make it more affordable generally. Um, and it took some of the risk out of it. Plus, they were making money on the real expensive fun stuff. So why, you know, substitute profitable business with an unprofitable bev? For a lot of reasons, that's what happened. And um, yeah. I was at Toyota for 25 years, so I saw what happened with Prius, where in my neighborhood in Santa Monica, Prius was the only car to have. And then as soon as... It wasn't, no one owned one. It got super rational. Yep. So it, it's almost like a tech. It is. It's like people's love for different apps. I believe that Americans and globally, that a car is still an emotional buy. Yeah. And I believe that the industry bears the burden of coming up with incredibly, wickedly cool products that will blow you away. For example, super lightweight, but super powerful sports car. Those have always been a contradiction. We can now do that with batteries because of the torque. Yeah. I think there are so many new solutions once we free up our prejudice that you are going to be more and more tortured with this topic because we're gonna offer you yeah. a lot of really freaking cool products that, that most people can't imagine today. And I think the transition will go fine. And I, I have to say, electric cars are better cars, rationally. 40% less moving yeah. parts, 
more torque. The interior is a class above. You can have as big tires as you want. You can put the tires on the edge of the vehicle, which yeah. performance-wise, I, I can give you all the reasons why it's just a better car. Yeah. I guess the, the things that I, I hope some manufacturer will narrow in on, and I guess you have too, is making some for the brand. I think that's what you're saying. Yes. Like, and I, I do think, though, that the engineers need to focus a little bit more, maybe it's already happening, into increasing the visceral nature of the experience because there just is none. Like, I have a buddy with the ludicrous version of the Tesla. So, you want to drive? Oh, it's 0 to 60 and 2 4, whatever it is. I did it, and I was like, "Yeah, that was insanely fast." But yeah. but it but it felt like I was on the Superman ride at Six Flags. It just felt like an electromag acceleration, yeah. and, and it just wasn't fun. We started there with the Mustang. I remember coming ah. back from Europe. It was four years ago, yeah. and yeah. I said to the team, "We need to get emotion. Uh, we need to put Detroit swagger in our electric car." And people are like, "Well, no, yeah. it's gonna be a four door, and people won't like it as a Mustang." I'm like, "Yeah, I know they won't." But I know for Ford, when I call it a Mustang, we're going to get the good stuff. We're going to get all the good engineers who have crazy ideas, just like they have. Yeah. And, and that's what happened with Lightning. You know, now you can power your house for four days with the Lightning. You can run a whole job site. You don't have to have a stinky diesel or gas generator anymore. You just run the job site with your F-150. We're finding all these new solutions with electric that are more than just a propulsion. And I agree with you, it's up to us to emotionalize it. But a pickup truck is not a logical vehicle for most people, but people are ordering the Lightning. We have 160,000 orders. Most of them aren't pickup truck owners because in the yeah. past pickup was like, oh, bad fuel economy. Those people are like tradesmen, I'm not a tradesman. And because it's green, because it does all this other cool stuff, they won't own it. That's emotional too, in my eyes. Can I ask, um, and this is this is potentially ripe for me offending people, but having worked for General Motors for 14 years, from 14 to 28, culturally the thing that I am curious if it's changed at all is in general the eighth level person got to talk until they were exhausted, and then the seventh level, seventh level yep. person got to talk till they were exhausted at dinner. You didn't ever hear from four through one, you didn't hear from any young people. You, you, there was there was there was such a uh, a stratified system there, and and then coming to Los Angeles, which is virtually the polar opposite. You could be the head of Sony Pictures. You're going to have to listen to this 19 year old kid pitch you a movie idea. Mm -hmm. Like you, you are forced to listen to people, and I just wonder culturally if that's what your thoughts on that are, and if that's evolved at all, and if you think that's at all part of the stumbling blocks that the big three are, have grown through in the 90s yeah i mean if we don't change that we're done um no doubt about it i won't be i won't be offended and i will be as clear as a as a, a piece of crystal uh if we don't if we don't change that and we're in the middle of it i'll give you the example why it's kind of happening all now in an exciting way doug fields great american engineer works at Ford for a few years, gets sick of the bureaucracy. He's eighth down on the list, never gets to say anything. Like you said, yeah. he quits and goes and invents a Segway as an engineer. He then leaves Segway and goes to Apple to design software. He then leaves there and because the chief engineer of Tesla, the father of the Model 3, father of the Model Y, then he leaves to go to Apple for whatever they're working on transportation. 
So you guys had Jordan. You traded Jordan. Yeah, I just yeah. And this guy is coming to Ford, yeah. right? So he he goes to our first meeting. He's like, "Well, that's stupid. That's stupid. Uh, I don't know why we're doing that. Why are we doing that? Why does that take that long?" So I, I guess what I'm saying is the digital transformation of our industry is not just electric propulsion. Yeah. You're going to be able to take a nap yeah. in your car soon, at least on the highway, you know. And we have to put embedded systems to do that. The people who know that are not 57-year-old white men who've been in car industry yeah. uh, for 40 years like me. Well, same, so. same. I'm not arrogant. Like, like, we didn't like our acts, but I also was not arrogant enough to not recognize, yeah, I'm also 46, and I have a definition of what a car mm -hmm. is, and this is a different thing entirely. Totally. Young people love. Yep, totally. So I, I think it's exciting for me, actually, because... Uh, coming to a Detroit company, we can move fast because of that top-down culture. That's one thing that people don't talk about it. Like, we're like, let's go to electric. Boom. We're in electric business quickly. That's yeah. a good thing about it. The other thing, though, is that we do have to change the culture, and it will be different. And it is different because the software and the data and the people who know about battery technology and mining for the raw materials, they aren't from this industry. And they are running the show. I, I was introduced to the big three at probably the nadir of their engineering, their production quality. And you can't deny what Lexus mm -hmm. or Toyota did to the big three in a positive way, ultimately. I think I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a lot of data, but the build quality has gone through it, the roof. Yeah. It, it, oh, well, can I take a different view on that in a way? Like, yeah, I think yeah, factually yeah. for the customer, you're exactly right. When I told my family that I was going to go work for Lexus and Toyota, my grandfather said, I'm happy you have a job, but don't come to my house. The social yeah, cost yeah. Of, of those companies' success and what it meant because the Detroit companies weren't run well, it, it devastated people's lives. Like the bankruptcy just a few years ago, a lot of people lost everything. Yeah. And, um, but... but that's one thing to lament if you don't think we can compete. We can. But to me, that's such, a, that's, a, that's such a fatalistic, we can't? Is that I said we can. That's why I'm here. That's why I left yes. Toyota yeah, for 15 like, years I, ago. I, I think it's un, unpatriotic to go, because this happened all the time. If someone drove a, a Honda to the GM Proving Grounds, they'd get a brick through their windshield if they put in employee parking. I, I get it. But at the same time, that's such a defeatist mentality mine is detroit was silicon valley let's 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 rise to that yeah, yeah. we were i'm saying dax i'm i'm not like right, that right i came from a different universe i'm just observing how people yeah, act yeah. around me and what i'm saying is that that's not how it feels now and that's not the team i'm building and that's not why the heck i'm here at this company yeah. you said it perfectly uh, my grandfather in 1913 first year of the assembly line, like he was working in Silicon Valley. He was at Apple making right. iPads. And there is no reason why we can't do that again. And I can't wait for you to see what we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I'm, I'm very bullish and I'm very excited by the decisions that have been made over the last 10, in the wake of those bankruptcies, as terrible as they were. Yes. Someone had to put an end to that. Well, thank you. I could talk to you for hours. I've learned so much about cars already and Thank you very much for your advice about how to do this well. I, I'm kind of awkwardly stepping into the fray here. 
And um, taking advice from a professional like you is very helpful to me. And thank you for your time. Well, that's very flattering. And the notion that a CEO of Ford wants to talk to me is, is comical. Uh, it all makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show, and I wish you a ton of luck with it. I wish you could come to Dearborn and I could give you a Cook's tour of the design studios and and our new electric F-150 plant in Dearborn where my grandfather worked. We converted the Rouge plant now to make electric F-150s. You should come back home. Oh, yeah, 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 I would love that. I was also told you're gonna send me a voodoo drivetrain for my Zephyr for doing the podcast, so I just appreciate it. If you trade in, if you trade in your wide body Mopar, uh, maybe. <laughs> Drive is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Spotify. Chris Curtin is consulting producer. Our production staff includes Julia Knott and Eva Walchover, with help from Lori Arpin, Jeff Nelson, Josh Malofsky, Darnell Macon, and Mark Truby. Special thanks to Liz Kellogg and Matt Lieber. Jim Farley is the host, and this is Drive. Drive.